Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done or have said or done in their workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, and I'm the founder and president of Excellius Leadership Development. Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. I hope you'll listen to our past podcast conversations, and if you'd like to hear past episodes, go to BeBraveAtWork.com, subscribe to our podcasts, and learn some valuable lessons about bravery at work. My new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Success, is now available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and any online book retailer you prefer. Check out Drive Your Career today. Our podcast today is sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies. Based in Woburn, Massachusetts, Cabot Risk Strategies has created innovative and customized insurance strategies for individuals and families, businesses, nonprofits, commercial real estate, and public entities. Cabot's client base continues to expand both within the region and within the markets they serve. And if you are looking for customized insurance services and solutions, contact Cabot at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Melody Stanford-Martin is a social ethicist and communications expert. She's the author of Brave Talk, Building Resilient Relationships in the Face of Conflict. I've read the book, I've loved the book, and I know we're gonna be talking a lot about Brave Talk during our conversation today. Melody is also the founder of the Brave Talk Project, and founder and CEO of Cambridge Creative Group, a narrative marketing and design company specializing in nonprofit outreach. Melody's work focuses on rhetorical innovation, courageous community engagement, and out-of-the-box thinking to solve social problems. Hello, Melody. Hello. Thank you so much for having me today, Ed. Thank you for being here today. So much of the work that you're doing is tied to helping people be brave or braver, so I'm really excited to talk about the project you're working on, as well as your new book, Brave Talk. Thank you so much. So I took a yeoman's effort at introducing you. I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of how you're interacting with the marketplace today. That's such a great question, how to interact with how I'm interacting with the marketplace. I love that. So much of my work is often bifurcated into the nonprofit, for-profit, and even public sectors as I'm starting to do more work with municipalities. So it's nice to hear that the marketplace language, there is not just a marketplace of, of commerce, but also of ideas and causes, right? On the Cambridge Creative Group side, I stay busy working mostly with nonprofits, doing uh, consulting, marketing consulting, everything from overseeing graphic and web design, you name it, visual strategy and identity, I'm there. And my work actually in my training in graduate school around social ethics really informs that work with nonprofits and helps me build better marketing strategies. And we'd say marketing is kind of a goofy word in the nonprofit space, messaging and outreach, you could say. And then with the publication of my book, I've been doing a lot more consulting and even coaching on a C-suite level with organizations who are navigating conflict in their internal spaces and in their external communities as well. So helping organizations think through the process of transforming conflict, which is different from a traditional conflict resolution approach, which if you've read the book, you'll know what I mean by that. Conflict transformation is more focused on systems thinking and getting to the root causes of problems so they don't happen again, instead of just a traditional 
resolution or fix it, or you could say a band-aid approach. So I'm thrilled to be able to make that term more popular. I did not coin it. It actually was coined by a professor at Notre Dame named John Paul Lederach. And I am inspired by this field and excited that it's growing in popularity. Fantastic. And, you know, you used the word municipalities a few moments ago. And when I think about Be Brave at Work, it's important to remind our listeners that this isn't just a corporate concept, right? It's not just the Walmarts and Amazons of the world where people need to be braver, but it's also at nonprofits. And when you say municipalities, I think you mean cities and towns, right? So for cities and towns, it's really any employed person or actually anyone, even personally, could be braver than they are today. And I think that's one of the reasons why you know, the work that you're doing and the purpose of our podcast tie together so beautifully. Thank you. I'm excited that you think that. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Well, look, so what started this topic for you, this concept of creating a book called Brave Talk, right? It's so succinct in the title and it can tie to people who say, hey, I need to talk braver or be braver in what I'm doing. Can you give us a little background and history uh, from your perspective of where this came from? Yes, actually, it's a very personal story. I have experienced, as many of us have in the last few years, pretty intense and quite painful conflict with people I love over things like politics and religion. And in graduate school, I attended Boston University. In graduate school, I became really interested in this question of conflict transformation, and, and BU happened to have a wonderful program through their seminary of conflict transformation. So I ended up specializing in, in that and ethics social ethics in particular, which is really asking the question of not just how we can be good people in the world, but how we can have right relationships with each other on an interpersonal level, on a community level, on a social society level, a democratic level. And I wish that was another term that was more in popular circulation, social ethics, right relationship, the art of right relationship. So conflict transformation became a quest for me to to address my personal struggle with family and friends who believed differently than I did. And I, I think that's the story of most Americans these days. We almost all of us have those relationships that have been put under a tremendous strain because of political polarization. So, so this is a, a personal journey and an academic journey and a professional journey for me that all converged into this, into the writing of this book. Well, this is a fascinating time for most of us where this topic, as you mentioned, about how to be a good person, how to have right relationships, how to create or follow some type of social ethics is more prevalent uh, in all of our lives in 2020 and probably in 2019 than I think ever before, uh, just because of a lot of the visibility of the political arena that we're currently in and the behaviors that we're seeing of people and us assessing whether they are a good person or not a good person, or did they say something different last week than they're saying today? You know, these types of observations that so many of us currently have really put this topic of, uh, you know, how to be a good person, how to have right relationships, and how to really exhibit social ethics so, uh, so much more, really, than ever before. And I want to tack on to what you're saying in that these polarizations and these these challenges we meet in our personal lives do not just stay at home with us. They do impact our work and they do impact how brave we can be at work in the different social situations we find ourselves in. All of those unspoken rules and norms 
will play out in the workplace. So it's, there is so much crossover between the personal and the work life, isn't there? There is. And I would just mention the opposite, right? That if I'm having a work-related uh, experience that's not positive, I'm bringing it home, right? The the observation that we have today of the holistic employee, right? That you're not just a person at work who doesn't think anything about home, or you're not a person at home, or, you're at, or you are a person at home who's not thinking of anything at work just doesn't exist. And, you know, I can remember back in my corporate days, which was about 12 years ago, uh, you know, having work that I would bring home over the weekends, right, to work on. I never did it, unfortunately, but uh, because too many personal things were already planned for that weekend. But, you know, I was attempting to kind of bring the two together. And of course, during the workday, calling in on a family member or having to leave early to attend a, you know, my daughter's uh, teacher program or things of that nature, you know, were highly prevalent. So I think it goes really both ways. And, you know, recognizing that holistically, we operate as a person, and you know how can people specific to our topic today be braver in the workplace to help navigate and mitigate those experiences are important. And then also, uh, I think the lessons that you can learn about being brave at work can also help you be braver personally. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about your book. Again, I've read it. I loved it. It's full of so many good models and ideas and research and uh, conversations that you've had with people all about, you know, I think it's really a broader topic than bravery. And you mentioned conflict navigation. You know, I do think in some ways, and I'm a little bit of a student of bravery, that conflict is a broader topic of bravery, right? That, you know, bravery is one thing that you can do in order to solve or navigate through a conflict. Uh, I'm just going to pick apart, uh, pick through just a couple of the concepts that you shared, Melody, if that's okay. Absolutely. Let's do it. One of the topics which was new to me that I read about in your book, which helped really align some of the things that were important to my life, is this concept of impasse, right? Because I have relationships with people that we have never agreed, we never will agree, and yet that disagreement has defined our relationship. And we've never said, you know what, we disagree, we'll never agree, but let's not let this define our relationship. Let's still have a relationship and recognize that there's this you know, disagreement that we have. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about you know, where this idea of impasse came from and you know, what is an impasse for, for our listeners? The idea came from, <laughs> I'm laughing because if you read the book, you'll see the dedication is to my mother. And we have had a decade of difficult, strained relationship where we've had to come to terms with the fact that we will probably never change each other's mind. And I have respect for her as a as a thinking adult, uh, you know, someone who, who can make up their mo own mind about the world. And she has that respect for me, but it's so frustrating. And I want to talk, dig more into this in a moment. It's so incredibly frustrating to care for someone who sees the world so differently. And you think, how can we possibly have the same values at all if we see the world this differently? And before I go into that in more depth, because it does tie back to brave, bravery for me a lot, I want to mention this statistic. 40% of people in the last election did not know anyone voting for the other side. 40%, say that again. 40, 40 of people did not know anyone voting for the other side. 40% of Republicans voting in the last election did not know a single person voting for Biden. 40% of Democrats did not have a single person voting for Trump. We are really polarized into these structures, these bubbles of separation. And, and I could talk for a long time about polarization and how some of that is even 
fabricated for us, right? For for a certain gain. That's all I'll say about that at the moment. But but I think we we find ourselves in our interpersonal relationships stuck, even trapped in these larger structures of conflict that we really can't do much about. These ideologies that are that are set at odds with each other. So going back to my mother, we've had to recognize there is an impasse there that probably can never be resolved. And it's extremely uncomfortable to recognize that. And for me, that has been a process of grieving. That's been a process of grief that that I can't control this person that I love. I can't control her. And that's very hard to come to terms with. And I think for me, that's that's a brave thing itself to face right? And when I say things like grief, some people think of, you know, the death of a loved one, which is true. That's absolutely a grief process. But if anyone who's done grief training, grief work, like I have, will understand that humans grieve for so many reasons. We grieve physical death. We grieve the death of a relationship. We grieve that the world is not as it should be. We grieve the loss of dreams. We, we grieve so many different things. And I think it can be tremendously brave to look into that face of that grief and say, this relationship with this person is not how I want it to be. But to stay there and to not run away and to not hide from it and to not blow it up, but to just stay there and face it. That's been one of the hardest things for me personally in my adult life to do, but it's been extremely meaningful to lean into. Impasse, to lean into impasse and say, what's here? And how can we make the relationship resilient despite the presence of impasse. Yeah, well, look, you know, uh, one of the key takeaways for me in the book was the ability and for our listeners just to recognize that if you're having friction with another person is to think about it a little bit and say, you know, is this an impasse or is this something through conversation and influence I can have uh, create a different outcome, right? That, you know, we just see things a little bit differently, but I believe through conversation and looking at options, you know, we can have a new type of income, uh, outcome. But, you know, I never really thought about the concept of impasse, which was a difference that no matter what I say or how I say it, you're never going to feel anything different. You're never going to think about it anything uh, any way differently. But let's not let that influence who we are uh, and how we relate with one another, right? It's a part of our relationship, but it is not our complete relationship. And that's why I thought it was so important that you shared that concept. I love that you shared it early in the book, right? It wasn't buried on page, you know, 275. But, you know, you started out talking about the fact that sometimes conflict or the need to be brave, you first need to identify, is this an impasse? Absolutely. And some of <laughs> some of my work in that stems from a deep frustration in my graduate work, where I would go to my professors and say, all of the case studies we're reading have resolutions. They all have some way to work things out. But what happens, which had been my experience, what happens when you can't resolve it? What do you do? And I never got a good answer for that. And I don't think there is a lot of work out there on impasse, at least for a general audience. Maybe there is, you know, on an academic level. So one of the things that I've really started to try to do, and this might help your listeners who are dealing with impasses in their work environments, because this takes some bravery. I recently wrote an article for Psychology Today called Agree to Disagree is Not an End, It's a Beginning. And I want to offer this tool for you if you're having trouble getting stuck in impasse and having these sort of explosive conversations on repeat with the same person, the same topic, and, you, and every time you, you end it with, let's just agree to disagree. Why not start the conversation there? 
and say, you know, we're going to decide ahead of time. We're not going to try to change or control each other. We're going to let each other be where we are. It does some pretty magical things. It lowers antagonism, which actually neurologically increases our ability to learn new information. And it lowers fear because we're not afraid that someone's hellbent on attacking us. And it actually creates a sort of collaborative educational environment where people can say things like, oh, I never thought about it that way. And no one's sitting in the corner saying, gotcha, (laughs) because you've already agreed ahead of time that you're not going to try to change each other's mind. It's like an anti-debate. It's an opposite of a debate, right? That can be a really helpful tool for anyone who might be struggling with this. Well, that's great. Oftentimes with clients, I tell them that anytime that they're sharing information with others, it might be difficult. Uh, You should not be first going in to get agreement. You should first be going in to get understanding where someone can say, I understand why you feel the way that you feel. I don't agree with you. I never will agree with you, but I understand why you think what you think. And it could be something like gun control or abortion or, you know, these topic, uh, these hot topics that are out there. But, uh, you know, somebody who believes in gun control and someone who doesn't are never going to convince each other to totally sway over to the other side of the argument. So a big takeaway from your book, and I hope a big takeaway from our, for our listeners today is if you ha- are having a challenge in a relationship, and let's say it's with a boss or a peer, you know, is this an impasse? Is this something that no matter what I say, or anytime we go there, our emotion really kicks in and it just becomes a real nasty, ugly conversation. Can we have a better relationship by acknowledging it up front that we have this difference? It's always going to be a difference. Let's just acknowledge it and move forward, as opposed to getting stuck there every time that we connect. Yes, exactly. And it that's that's hard to do because the issues were that that's difficult to do because the issues that we're so passionate about, often we have stakes in those issues. Those issues impact our real lives. And so it's not just an abstract ideological concept. It's it's if you believe this thing, telling someone else, if you believe that thing, you are encroaching on my freedom, on my right, on my identity, so on and so forth. It can be extremely challenging to navigate. We're going to pause in our conversation with Melody Stanford Martin and ask that you join us for our next podcast where we will continue our conversation. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week and we hope you join us next week as we further explore Being Brave at Work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and or download and listen to our podcast on Apple, Google, CastBox, Overcast, Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, We are everywhere. Our podcast today was sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies, whom you can reach at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. And a reminder to check out my new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Own Success, which is available everywhere online. Do you have something to say yet are not saying it? Do you have something to do yet are not doing it? Now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.